Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I am super excited about our guest today. It's Dr. Jennifer Kennedy, who is the Senior Director of Regulatory and Quality Affairs at the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Dr. Kennedy received her BSN from DeSales University, her MA from Trinity Washington University in Health Education and Case Management, and most recently, and very exciting, her EDD from Nova Southeastern University in Healthcare Education and Policy. So this is one smart cookie we have on the line here. Welcome, Dr. Kennedy. Hi, Mary Lynn. I'm so excited to, uh, to be with you today. Thanks for asking me. Oh, my gosh. We're super excited you're with us. So I understand that your Ph.D. dissertation was titled Short Length of Stay in Hospice Care, Optimal Life Closure, which is the bane of every hospice in the world. Would you agree? Yeah, it was, and that, that was really the reason that I chose that topic because it's such, it's, it's the frequency of, of short stays is increasing, and I really wanted to take a look at, at you know, what we could do for that and bring my research back to NHPCO to see if um, resources could be developed um, based on it. Well, I certainly hope that was your finding, but let's not uh, steal your own thunder here. So tell me, what does the data show about patients with short lengths of stay in hospice? Well, the data, our data from NHPCO uh, 2016 um, indicated that 55% of patients received hospice care for 30 days or less. And um, if you look at the uh, MedPAC or the Med Medicare Payment Advisory Commission uh, data, uh, it's a little more dated, but you know, even back in 2010 and 2011, they were seeing 25% uh, of hospice stays were only five days or less. That's so, shocking. Um, I know. It, it, it's crazy. And, you know, those of us who've been uh, in, in and about palliative care for quite a while, you know, we're worried that, um, hospice is being reduced to like a deathbed benefit, and, and there's so much good that can come from uh, a healthy length of stay within hospice. Uh, and it's interesting to note that uh, Medicare's data for 2017, uh, which they cited in this year's um, hospice wage index proposed rule, uh, they said that the median length of stay was only 18 days. Wow, that's amazing. What can yeah, you really do really in two weeks? That's pretty scary. I was sharing with some learners the other day, looking at your data, NHPCO, from 2016 and comparing it to 2013 and the admitting diagnoses to hospice. So I was kind of heartened to see the gap closing between cancer and heart disease, since it seems that every one of us has about a 50-50 shot of more likely than not dying of cancer or heart disease. So I was happy to see that gap narrowing with cancer down to 27% and heart disease up to about 19%. But still, right. it doesn't matter what your diagnosis is, if you're referred so late to hospice. So what are some of the reasons why this is happening? Why are patients being referred to hospice so late in their disease trajectory? Well, that's partly what I wanted to learn from my um, doctoral dissertation. And um, what I learned from my um, literature review that there were, a there were a variety of reasons, you know, uh, why patients arrived to hospice so late. And some of those reasons, of course, included the untimely referral. Uh, and that, you know, was linked to uh, physician hesitancy to actually prognosticate, you know, is this the time to make the referral? Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people automatically think, oh, it's a physician issue. But 
uh, literature also showed that there's a, a patient and family side to the equation where um, either the patient and the family are in denial and they're not ready to, to make that commitment uh, to uh, acknowledge that they have a terminal illness and hospice care uh, could be the way to go, um, or they're just not aware of it. Uh, they don't have knowledge about what hospice care is and what it could do to help them. Yes. And then a- another prominent one is that hospice hastens death. And yes. I think that one's an old myth, um, Marilyn. You know, that's been around since, you know, 20, the 20 years ago I started doing palliative care. Um, but, you know, the thing is, is that uh, we have to sort of um, take a look at all the reasons, and we can't put all the eggs in one basket, being that the physician is taking their good old time and referring. There's a, there are a lot of variables to consider. Yeah. I always thought that the reason cancer had a higher prevalence in hospice and heart disease was because cancer is easier to prognosticate the trajectory, which heart failure can be a little tricky. People can decline and then rebound, decline and rebound. Uh, But regardless, it just seems that I still do see people thinking, like my own mother told me until the day she died, I don't like what you do for a living because everybody dies. I was like, well, Mom, everybody's going to die regardless. But she said, no, once they're in that hospice thing, they're all going to die. Uh, I think people still automatically go there, and as a matter of fact, I think that's even rubbing off on palliative care because you hear about these conversations like maybe we should change the name of our team to supportive care instead of palliative care. So do you really think that whole thing is a myth thing, or do you think it's fading or still growing or still there? What do you think? The whole fear of hospice and palliative care. I, you know, I think there, that, that there is a toehold there. I think that people do, if they, if they have an inkling of what it is, they, they don't want to go there. You know, yeah. you mentioned your mom. My mom uh, uh, died 20 years ago. She had hospice care, and she was deathly afraid of, okay, if I actually say that I'm ready for hospice care, it's, a, it's a, an automatic death sentence. Yeah. And, um, you know, she didn't sign her DNR until three weeks before she died. Um, but on the other side, uh, uh, I felt her oncologist um, held her too long and didn't have that conversation, those advanced care conversations and those option conversations about mm-hmm. um, you, you, we could go that one more round of chemo or radiation or here's another option that will help you raise the quality of your life by taking care of your symptoms. Yeah, so, but I do think sometimes that's patient and family driven too, where they want to go is. full guns blazing till the bitter end. Don't you agree? I sure do. I sure do. Yeah. And, you know, it's driven by, it could be uh, patterns of care that, uh, uh, that they're used to. It could be previous experiences in their family. It could be a cultural issue. Mm-hmm. It could be a religious issue. There are just a lot of different um, uh, social determinants that also could have effect on when they actually decide they're ready for hospice or palliative care. Sure. You know, and I I think it's interesting. Of course, I'm located in Maryland, not too far from you, and I know that some of the larger hospices in my area actually have one team is designated as like the SWAT team for these patients who they know coming into it have, we hope they can live through the admission visit basically. So in your opinion, do hospice providers approach the care of a patient with an anticipated short stay differently and how? Well, I think some providers do, and and really that's that's what my whole aim of my my study for my dissertation was to find out um, how hospices uh, alter their approach for a patient. Mm-hmm. And I was really focusing on that seven days or less 
time frame. And what I've learned, well, what I learned through my study and what I've learned, you know, just being out and about and um, talking to providers every day, uh, going to different states and speaking at meetings, is that more providers seem to be uh, doing a more organized approach, either by uh, formalizing a, a process or a protocol uh, for patients that fall into that short-stay box. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I think that's encouraging that uh, hospices on their own have recognized that, Ugh, you know, we, you know, this this patient is unique, and we've got to essentially, you know, really front load services uh, because we don't have a, a, a lot of time to work with this patient. Sure. And you know, every one of the my study participants felt like they were engaged in crisis deathbed care. Wow. And, you think it's still worth making a referral to hospice when a patient has less than a week left to live? You know, that, that's a great question, Mary Lynn. Um, I, I think it's individualized. I think you have to look at it from patient-to-patient situation. I um, talk to a lot of uh, patients, uh, I'm sorry, I talk to a lot of providers who are getting even referrals from acute inpatient uh, hospitals where the patient's imminently dying. Mm-hmm. And they they just want them off, out of their uh, out of their acute bed, right? And yes, they don't I want to die on the hospital's rolls, so to speak. Exactly, and and you know, most uh, hospices uh, will admit the patient, even if it's a matter of hours. And uh. I even challenge providers to say, you know, what benefit is it really going to have for that yeah. patient and family if you're with them for three hours? Yes, I agree. So, I agree. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I don't know that we should have a, a broad brush uh, sort of view on uh, is it worth it, seven days or less. I think you look at each patient and family individually, and then you weigh it um, to see uh, what what impact or benefit you can have. And, and some providers feel like, oh, well, even if I can't spend a lot of time with the patient properly, I can provide the bereavement piece on the back end with the family. Which is not to be underestimated because that's critically important too. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, since I'm a pharmacist, I spend a lot of time thinking about how can we maximize drug therapy for people who have an advanced illness and they're close to the end of the road. And one of the things when I'm, for example, teaching admission nurses, I'll say, your job is to not rock the boat. Your job is to get in there, do a good med rec history, and kind of open the door a little bit saying, you know, when I get back to work, my, your nurse case manager will take a look and work with your doctor and our doctor to make sure that your loved one is on the very best drug regimen possible. And if right. the patient has a day or two left to live, they don't have time for the patient and the family to form that trusting bond with the nurse case manager and the rest of the team. So I think that's one consequence. Are there other quality consequences for patients and families with these short lengths of stay in hospice, in your opinion? Yeah, absolutely. My, my research really showed that, you know, in addition to not being able to have that, that trusting bond relationship, you just don't have time to form it, that um, caregivers uh, of these patients with short stays tend to have prolonged grieving. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and it, they ha- tend to have dysfunctional grieving uh, after that patient's death. Um, and also, when you're coming in so late to the party, so to speak, it really um, impacts how uh, the patient and the family are actually perceiving the death emotionally, spiritually, um, and 
how they are actually even thinking uh, about um, getting ready for the acceptance of the death and um, moving forward after that patient dies, how they're going to handle their grief. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are, you know, those are just a few, uh, I, I think, that we can talk about here today. But um, I think even, you know, depending on uh, the patient and the family, there could be even uh, additional far-reaching consequences. Um, but again, if it's the patient's choice to choose at the end, and the family's mm-hmm. choice to choose at the end, you know, and that's good enough for them. Um, we can't, you know, again, apply uh, uh, all, all of the research to every patient and family. Not one size fits all, huh? But I wonder, do families ever see, even in that short time, wow, this is a wonderful thing, and do they ever feel guilty, do you think, for not accepting hospice sooner? Yeah, and, and I, I did find that in my uh, literature review, that some patients, uh, caregivers, really said, oh, my God, I wish you would have had this sooner. Yeah. Um, actually, I was just traveling, uh, and I, uh, I talked to my cab driver, and he had a, a recent hospice experience, and he said, oh, yeah, my, uh, my father had hospice for uh, three days, and it was great. And they were so wonderful, and, you know, they did all these things for us, and we can't say enough. And they had an extremely positive experience, and they they felt good about it, you know, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, you could talk to somebody else, and, and, again, with that guilt, and I wish we would have had it sooner, that really impacts the whole grieving process for the caregiver. I'm sure it does. Goodness. So now that we've beaten to death, pardon the pun, the problem what are some suggested strategies for hospice providers to get the length of stay increase? How can we get people into hospice sooner? Well, I think education has a lot to do with it. So uh, we, we need to be talking about um, uh, earlier referral with those physicians, you know, your, your cardiologists, your pulmonologists, your internists, um, your hospital partners, um, whoever a hospice has as a stream for the referrals, they really need to be doing that education and that um, supportive, uh, we'll be here to help you, you just need to hear the, hear the indicators of when a patient might be in the window for that. So a lot of education, I think, still needs to be done. We're, we're not near where we need to be in, in terms of education. Uh, and also, I think when we're talking about um, education about proper referral to a hospice, you know, it, it even goes a step back, Marilyn, in, in advanced care directive conversations. Mm-hmm. And um, we know that uh, physicians are comfortable with having those, you know, conversations. Mm-hmm. And the best time to have those is when the patient is not in a crisis. Sure, of so, course. Right, so I, yes, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of opportunity uh, for that type of education. Um, also, in in terms of hospice providers, uh, you know, we, as I mentioned before, we're seeing more providers develop uh, uh, a honed approach to uh, managing these patients with a short length of stay so that they can do their best to give them the most optimal um, interdisciplinary holistic hospice experience that's possible. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not easy to do by any stretch of the imagination, but um, what we're doing at NHPCO is we're looking at this short-stay topic really carefully right now from a quality perspective, and we hope to actually have a resource out by the end of the year for hospice providers to use 
to help them build an approach or a protocol or a process of their mm-hmm. own that works for their uh, for their geographic area and their hospice population to help them manage these patients more optimally. Well, I'm sure that'll be a welcome resource in their armamentarium. And, you know, as the drug girl, I'm often uh, dismayed by direct-to-consumer advertising about drugs. Do you think hospices should employ approach an approach where they market, so to speak, or inform or educate the general population about the benefits of hospice? Yeah, I think that, I think that really needs to be done. And we've even been encouraging and providing even marketing materials for mm-hmm. hospices on an annual month. November is hospice month. And we every year give them um, uh, the opportunity to use marketing materials that we develop to get out there in their community um, and get the word out that, you know, it's, it's really a beneficial um, quality of life, supportive service. And, mm-hmm. it, 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 you know, to, to really talk about what it is and what it is not and how helpful it can be. Absolutely. So, um, so many misinformed people out there, definitely. Right, right, right. I, you know, and at the national level, uh, we do whatever we can. You know, primarily we're, we're uh, educating um, Congress on the Hill. We're educating um, all of the players who uh, make the regulations to, to understand um, not only the benefit of uh, – palliative care, meaning hospice at that end of the life uh, palliative continuum, but oh my gosh, wouldn't it be great to have a, a fully funded palliative care uh, benefit? Yes, and, yes. Uh, I think that's one of the stumbling blocks is people not wanting yeah. to give up curative therapies, and, you know, and then once you get practitioners in the loop who can really explain the benefits and the burdens, then people may change their mind, but that is such a gun to your head kind of moment, don't you think? I absolutely agree. So that's where a lot of our focus is going right now, is really trying to open up the playing field for that out-of-the-box thinking of, wow, wouldn't it be great if we could have this, this continuum of palliative care that is funded yes. by Medicare, and oh my gosh, it'll save you money. <laughs> yeah, what, what a concept, huh? Well, I know what that we all applaud NHPCO's efforts and yours as well, because this is sorely needed. Any closing thoughts, Dr. Kennedy, about this short length of stay issue that we had not already touched on? Well, I think, first of all, hospices need to self-assess what their short length of stay is, and then they need to start figuring out what strategy they want to employ to make sure that that patient has um, uh, the best hospice experience that they possibly can have. Absolutely. Amen to that. Well, Dr. Kennedy, I'd like to thank you so much for being with us today uh, in this informative podcast. We're very appreciative. And I'd like to thank the audience for listening to our Palliative Care Chat podcast. Again, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2018, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.com edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.